0: Good morning, brothers and sisters. I'm very humbled by Ben's introduction. Don't feel I deserve that at all. Um, But yes, I am also very blessed and excited to be here with all of you. Um, Can we all start with reading together the, the passage for this morning? It's in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. It should be familiar for many of you. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. It begins, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand. Which he had taken with tongs from the altar, with it he touched my mouth and said, "See, this has touched your lips; your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for." Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, "Whom shall I send, and who will go for us?" And I said, "Here am I; send me." Uh, let's pray, uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we're so thankful that this morning, um, on this Sabbath. Sunday, Lord, we're able to gather together to worship you as one body, as one uh, congregation. And Lord, indeed, we desire to bring you praise, to, Lord, give you the the glory that you deserve. And I pray that you'd be blessing our minds this morning, that they would be clear to understand your word, and our hearts would be humble, Lord God, to receive it, to be blessed by it, Lord God, to let it seep into our very being. And so we thank you so much. And we pray for your blessing, O Lord, we need it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this morning, I wanted to talk about uh, the topic, the title, is Confronted by the Holiness of God. Confronted by the Holiness of God. And so I think this idea of holiness is very familiar, probably to many of you, um, that our God is a holy God. And from what I can tell, uh, this church really enjoys singing it, praising it glorifying God for his holiness. But this is something that um, as a missionary uh, overseas in different countries over the years, I've noticed is not true at all uh, from firsthand experience. It's not true at all for many religions, for many people around the world, that an idea of a holy God and how that connects to a holy life is completely foreign. And so, for example, uh, part of you'll hear in the second session Part of my work as a missionary, uh, as an evangelist, is to be preaching the gospel, of course. And so I do most of that on campus with uh, university students in Mongolia. And so usually a conversation starts with me just saying, Hello, I'm a pastor. Have you read the Bible before? Have you gone to church before? Usually it's no. And as I begin to share the gospel with them, uh, one of the things, of course, that I ask them is, Do they think they're a sinner? What is their understanding of sin? So I'll ask, you know, do you have sin, or have you sinned before? And what's very interesting is I think you'd be very surprised to know their response. That I would say the vast majority of people, they all have a very similar initial response. And the response they give me is usually this. They say, yes, I sin because I have killed insects before. And the first few times I got that, I thought they were trolling me. <laughs> And I was like, are you, are you serious? Like, give me a real sin. But as I heard this more and more and more, I realized in their mindset for, you know, of course I'm also a stranger, so they're not going to pour out their life to me. But at the same time, there's this concept of a very small or very weak concept of sin. And many times I will even talk to people, and they will not admit at all that they have any sin. Uh, one time I was getting pretty upset with someone because of this and the conversation went you know do you have any sin he said no i said do you ever get angry and he's like no never well i'm getting angry (laughs) (laughs) you know have you ever lied no i've never lied you know and the list went on and on and i was quite shocked and so you know this is something that comes from a lack of understanding of the holiness of god right because only A vision of a holy God is going to connect down into an understanding of a holy life. And what does it mean to live in holiness, live in purity? So I think, of course, as I'm sure all of you know, this is of utmost importance. So this morning, uh, I wanted to look um, at Isaiah 6 to see what is the vision um, that Isaiah saw that communicates the holiness of God to us. So the first point is that the Lord is the true king. The Lord is a true king. So it begins uh, by saying in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord. I had this vision. And so King Uzziah was one of the few good kings uh, of the Southern Kingdom. There were unfortunately no good ones in the North. And he reigned for a very long time, for 52 years. And you know, for those of us who are used to four or eight year presidencies, right? That's, that's almost seven, eight-year presidencies, right? Goes beyond most of us, definitely for me. Uh, if you just think about, like, how impacted was the nation of Israel, was the Southern Kingdom, by such a long reign? If, for example, if you take, uh, you know, everyone's favorite Russian, Vladimir Putin, right? He's actually, I was researching this, he was actually only in power now, has only been in power for 18 years, but he has completely changed the the landscape, in fact, the constitution of Russia, right? It's almost impossible to be thinking, what was Russia like before Putin? And China's Xi Jinping, he's trying very hard to emulate that as well. And I was surprised to see he's only been in power for five years. And at the rate things are going, you know, if he was ruling for 52 years, it would be a completely different China. Actually, it's already a very different China. And so for King Uzziah to be reigning 52 years, this is a very weighty thing. And for him to die, right, because he was a very good king, uh, people respected him, he uh, improved the military, the agriculture, it was a very momentous occasion for his death. And so what Isaiah is doing here, or what God is doing through Isaiah's vision, is doing a contrast, right? And it's trying to show who is the true king, right? So what did Isaiah see to contrast uh, the Lord God to King Uzziah? And so first, he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. So most of you should know this. In our English Bibles, there's the tetragrammon. I can't really pronounce that. But if you see all caps, then you'll know that it's talking about Yahweh, right? And it's the name of God. And in this case, it's not the all-caps one. It's uh, lowercase. And so it's not uh, translating Yahweh, the Hebrew name of God, but it's Adonai. And so the way to understand this best is that it's a title. It's a title for God. It's not so much his name, but more like Mr. President, right? doesn't matter who is president. That is the title. That is the position. And so it's really focusing on the Lord in his highness because Adonai means the sovereign one, right? The idea is the sovereign, the exalted one. And so what Isaiah is saying is in this year, who did I see? I saw the sovereign, exalted God, Adonai. And what was he doing? He was seated on a throne, high and exalted. And so if you know history, like I know a little bit, um, you'll know that in history, the idea of kings and, well, queens as well, but mostly kings and emperors, uh, it's not like the way we understand it today. Most of the time you connect one king or one sovereign with one nation. But in history, that was not the way it worked most of the time. Most of the time, if you were a man with just like 10 warriors, 20 warriors, right, you would call yourself a king. That happened in Mongolia all throughout its history, right? And so anyone who had just enough manpower to subjugate a tiny area, they could call themselves a king. But the problem is, if everyone is a king, well, then no one's a king, right? And so there would always be this kind of jockeying for position. There would always be this fighting to prove who is the true king, who is the better king. So, of course, that would mean uh, differences in their clothes, in their throne, in their crowns, right, gold, gold precious jewels, there's always going to be these ways to show off. And so what Isaiah is saying is in his vision, who is Adonai? Who is the sovereign one? He's the one seated on the throne, high and exalted. Right? Of course, that's a very clear picture. right? Who is the true king? Who is the one seated high looking down on everyone? Right? That is indeed Adonai, right? the Lord God. And it continues, right, to say, uh, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And so they, I, you know, just the picture, right, just a little bit, the train of his robe filling the whole temple right, is enough to fill the whole temple. But in fact, this idea of train could even be translated as hem, right? Even just the hem, the bottom edge of God's robe, as it were, it was enough. Fill the entire temple. That is God's presence, right? Just the very edge of his garment. And it says, this is the Lord that I saw high and lifted up. Right? And so uh, this is the, the first idea, right? Who is the true king of kings and lord of lords, right? Not even great King Uzziah, right? No. But I saw the Lord, right, high and lifted up. right, so that's the first point, that the Lord is the true king of kings and lord of lords. The second point is that the Lord is the holy God, right? And so as as Isaiah continues his vision, what does he see? He says, above him were seraphim, all right, each with six wings. And this is something very familiar to us, right, with two that they were covering their eyes, two they were covering their feet, two they were flying. And what were they saying to one another? Right? They were saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Right? And then when we hear this word holy, I think usually the way most of us, most of the time, we understand this is to think of purity, right? something that is pure, something that is clean. And for sure, the idea of holiness contains this. But as most of you probably know, When the Bible uses the word holy, as in many other things, the idea, it it just staggers you, right? It's just so difficult to put into words. Uh, But the main idea of holiness is not so much purity, although that's one of the main subsegments, but the idea, of course, is to be set apart, right? And so I remember thinking that's a very not helpful definition when I first heard that. And I was like, okay, so it doesn't mean purity, it means set apart. That did not help me. And, you know, but the idea is that this is something that is not normal. So, of course, we all know with communion, right, with the bread um, and with the wine. And communion, of course, is a very holy time. But if you're a pastor and you're, you know, especially a pastor of a house church, and you're the one going out to try to, Well, in Mongolia, they don't really have the flat bread, so we just have to use random bread. But if you're the one that has to go buy these materials, right, and you're the one mixing grape juice with some wine, it doesn't feel very holy. But the idea is even though these things are very common, right, just bread or wine or grape juice, depending on what kind of Christian you are, you know, but once it is in a sense blessed, right, in holy communion, it becomes consecrated set apart from normal use. You no longer think of it as just bread I bought at the supermarket, right? Wine I bought. But it is now something holy. It is now something set apart. And so in that sense, for God to be holy, right, it means to be set apart in that way, that he is set apart from what is normal, from this world, from humanity, right? That he is not like you and me. Right? That is the main idea, that he is set apart, he is high on his throne, and not just high in terms of distance, but he is not like us in his character, and I think this is something that is so great, right? I think most of you know this, is that uh, the idea of holiness then is talking about God being a holy, holy, holy God, means it's saying this is God's core characteristic, right? This is the most important attribute of God because he's not just holy, he's not the comparatively holy, holy, but he is the superlative, holy, 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 right, and of course, as you know, for uh, the Hebrew language, it was, uh, they didn't have a lot of rhetorical devices or literary devices to help them emphasize things, right, these days, if you want to emphasize something, especially in the written form, you can do all sorts of things, you can underline, bold, put in the quotes. Now you have a million different emojis of different color schemes as well to, you know, try to express what you want, right, to emphasize, show uh, different things. But uh, in the Hebrew language, at least at that time, there were very few, and repetition was one of the most important, right? And so repeating this was saying, no, God is not just holy. No, he's not the comparatively holy, holy. He is his core central attribute is that he is the superlative, holy, holy, holy God, right? And so that idea means that his holiness is connected to all different parts of his character, right? That our God, he is not just, um, for example, a loving God, but he is holy in his love. He's not a God of just anger and wrath, but he is holy in his anger and his wrath. So let's think about that for a moment together, right? What are some reasons that, Uh, people like you and I, why do we get angry, right? And, you know, there's so many different reasons why you and I get angry. We get up on the wrong side of the bed, right? Didn't get enough sleep. We're hungry, which apparently is called hangry. You know, there's all sorts of different reasons why we get angry, right? I was just thinking, unfortunately, with my wife, you know? She's such a good wife. And yet, especially when we first got married, just the smallest, smallest things would would just get me upset you know Uh, I would see around the house for example she was you know she's cooking me food too this is very very selfish Uh, but you know uh, after cooking or different things maybe she'll leave the cap off and she didn't put it back on or if she opened a new jar she only ripped off half of like the tinfoil and you know okay you know so one time is okay but as it built up, and I'm seeing bottle caps everywhere, and I'm seeing half ripped off, you know, and they really would just, you know, and then I would just come out and just be like, can't you just like rip the whole thing off? You know, is it so difficult? You know, and I'm very embarrassed to have to admit that, but for you and I, right, there's all sorts of, many times very trivial reasons that we get upset, right? We're irritated, we're annoyed, we get angry. Imagine if that was our God, right? Imagine if our God was not holy, in his anger, right? That he really could just get up on the wrong side of the bed, and you're like, I don't know which God I'm going to get today, right? Is he, is he going to be more patient and kind? Is he, like, more annoyed and irritated? Maybe I should, like, save my requests for tomorrow, right? And it would be a very scary thing to live under such a God, right? Another example... Uh, for example, for God's faithfulness. Right? As you think about people, even the best of people, we know there's no one, there's no one who is completely faithful. Right? No one. And why are we, you and I, why are we faithless? Right? Why are we not considered faithful? Now, there are many reasons. For example, we may make promises and then forget. Right? If you're a parent, I think you'll know that. Uh, I was watching one of my best friends with his kids. And I forgot, his son wanted something, and he told him, no, not now. When you're 10 years old, I'll give it to you. And his son is like five right now. So I remember thinking, his son is going to remember this. <laughs> when the son turns 10, he'll say, dad, you promised me that you'd buy me, I think it was like an iPad or something. You'd buy me an iPad. You know, and of course, my friend will not re- remember this at all. He's like, what are you talking about? You know, and many times we are faithless, right, unfaithful because we make promises that we just plain forget. Other times we're faithless because we make promises, we make commitments that we think later on the costs, the costs are too high, right? It costs me too much to continue to hold on to my word. Therefore, I'm not going to keep it, right? Uh, The Bible says that the... um, a man of integrity, a man of righteousness is one that keeps his word even when it hurts. Right? But no one, not you, not I, can keep this all the time. And just other times, we're just deceptive. Right? We have no intention of keeping our word. We have no intention of being faithful. But because it gets us what we want, we make promises. Right? We make commitments that we know we're going to break. And so this is the idea of human faithfulness, right? And I think most of us can feel the gravity of this because I would say one of the most painful things, one of the most painful things in life is when you trust someone, right? You respect them. You trust them. You love them. You open yourself up to them, and they break your trust. They break your trust. And maybe not just once, right, but twice and many times. I think that's probably one of the most painful experiences that anyone can have. Right? But thankfully, as we think about our God, our holy God, who is holy in His faithfulness, He is not like that. He is not like that. And so, as we look at, uh, if you can turn, to me to, uh, turn with me together to Second Timothy, chapter two. I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, 11 to 13, I think is a very familiar passage for many of you, and Paul is saying, here is a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him, if we endure, we will also reign with him, if we disown him, he will also disown us, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot disown himself. And so in the saying, uh, especially if you, you're reading this for the first time, I think, you will unconsciously see the kind of logic or the structure here. right? He's saying two uh, positive things. If we died with him, we will also live with him. Right? If we endure, we'll also reign with him. right. So two positive things. If we uh, die with him, right. If we endure, then there are these rewards, there are these blessings. However, if we disown him, he will also disown us, right? First negative with a, you can say, kind of a curse or a consequence. So logically, you're being led to think, okay, if, he, if you are faithless, immediately your mind is going to fill in the blank, right? It's filling in this logic structure. So immediately you're going to think, oh, but so if I'm faithless, that means God's not going to be faithful to me, right? That's a just thing. And so that's the twist. It says, but if we are faithless, he, God, our Lord, remains faithful still. All right? And that's an amazing thing to think about that, right? That you, you know, if you break someone's trust, if you are faithless towards someone, right? For them to forgive you one time, I think for many people already, that's a that's an amazing thing, right? But for you, not just saying you are you sin, and you hurt, and you're faithless in many different ways. But I think what has really struck me is the idea that even when you're doing the same thing, the same sin, you're faithless in the same way again and again and again. that That's when it gets hard, right? If someone hurts you one time, someone just does something against you one time, it's actually quite easy, I would say, for most people, or at least not that difficult to kind of cover over it, to forgive, right? But if they continually do the same thing, which is why I think marriage is so difficult, right? We keep doing the same thing. It's not like new things, because when it's a new thing, it's much easier to let go, to forgive. But when it becomes a habit, it becomes harder and harder, right? Like Peter, if my brother sins against me seven times, right, the, the same thing, is that like the limit? right? Because everyone knows it's, we have a limit of how much we can take a limit, right, of someone just continually being unfaithful to us. But here, right, it says, no, our God is not like that. Right? Because of the cross, because of Jesus' righteousness, right, that he accomplished in his perfect life that's given to us, we can say with confidence, it with confidence, doesn't matter how many times I fail, how many times I mess up, in the exact same way, right where you're so frustrated you don't even like yourself and i think that happens a lot like my, i don't i i'm so disappointed with myself right i don't even want to look at myself let alone think what does a holy god think about me and yet right it says if you and i are faithless he remains faithful still why why how could this be because he cannot deny himself. Now, he cannot go against who he is, his character. And I think the more I go deeper into this idea, the more that I've seen my brothers and sisters go deeper into the faithfulness of God, his holy faithfulness, that he will never ever, in Christ, turn away from us no matter what, right? That That is an amazing thing, and that lets us go deeper and deeper into the gospel. All right, And so I think this is something that, for me, for a really long time, uh, I didn't come to appreciate. Right, The idea of God being holy, set apart, high, exalted was a great thing, but it was not something that I could approach. It was not something that drew me deeply into worship. But the more I was able to think about it, the more I was able to connect the idea that God's holiness is his central characteristic, and that connects to every part of God. That means he is not like you and me, right? That is a great thing. That is a thing for us to to worship and, and be glad in, right? And so that's my second point, is that the Lord is the holy God. And my third point, my last point, is that is taking a look at Isaiah's response to God's holiness. So Brother Ben was trying to help me give a good message, and he was trying to organize my points, right? The Lord is the true king. The Lord is the holy God. He said, you should do the third one. The Lord is something. And I tried, but (laughs) I couldn't get it to to match. So it's just Isaiah's response to God's holiness. And so as we continue uh, in this passage, we see uh, what was Isaiah's response to uh, seeing this vision and hearing this vision. He says, woe to me, right, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And so, uh, you know, this is something that's astonishing, right? When you think about the idea of woe, the idea of woe is the idea of a curse, right? Our Lord Jesus does this. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Blessed are you in all these ways. And to the scribes and Pharisees, teachers of the law, woe to you, right? Right? whoa cursed are you because you tithe your dill and mint and cumin, right? But you neglect the weightier things of the law, right? It's usually used as an idea of a curse. And Isaiah is cursing himself, right? He's saying, Woe is me, cursed am I. Why? Because I have seen the king, right? And I am a man of unclean lips. And so, I'm sure many of you are familiar with this, right, that whenever anyone comes into God's holy presence, right, there's only but one response, which is holy worship, holy fear, falling down on your face, right, Uh, in subjugation. And so this is very clear. Uh, This is Isaiah's response. But something that kind of struck me uh, even more deeply more recently was why? Why this idea of lips? I always wondered, I'm like, why would he choose lips? Why would he choose any body part at all, right? When other people are confronted with God and his holiness, they don't say, woe is my right hand, you know, woe is my left eye. Why is he bringing out his lips? And as I was digging deeper, I think there are many different reasons, but at least one I think that's very compelling is the idea that Isaiah is a prophet, right? He's a prophet of God. And we all know a prophet's main role, main job, is to speak the words of God. He bears the message of God with his words. And most likely from, we can see his success in ministry, he should be a pretty compelling prophet, a pretty good speaker. And so I think the idea is as he's confronted by this holy God, by our holy God, he is saying, even the very best part of me, even the very best part of me is cursed, my lips, right, that God has anointed, God has chosen to speak his very words, right? God chose him. God anointed him to do this work. God blessed his lips. And he's saying these lips that God has anointed and chosen, they are unclean. They're unclean, even the very best part of me. And this struck me really deeply because when you think about um, people's response to sin uh, when I was evangelizing here in America is very different than when I was evangelizing overseas. And I gave you that example in the beginning, right, of people's concept uh, towards sin. And what I've noticed is, of course, as a nonbeliever, most nonbelievers, especially outside of a Christianized context, they have no no concept of sin, right? Uh, especially because in most languages, there's no two words, right? In English, we know there's sin, which is like religious bad stuff, and crimes, which is, you know, illegal things. But in most languages that I've come across, there's only one word for crime and sin. So it becomes very strange, right? If someone comes up to you and says, are you a criminal? You know, have you committed crimes before? You'd be like, no, who are you, (laughs) right? This is very strange. Why are you asking me? And it took me a while to realize that's actually what people are, are hearing, um, but uh, to say like that, non-believers, right, non-Christians, have a very low view of sin, cannot understand this idea. You know, that's very easy, right? That they don't understand God's holiness, so they cannot connect sin in that way. But what I realize is that even as Christians, though, you can only a Christian is not a, not only able to repent of, for example, things that are more clear sin. Right? Because non-Christians, as well as Christians, should feel guilt, for example, if you deceive your friend, right? if you hurt someone, if you are unfaithful to your spouse. Right? I'd say most people, right, Christian or not, if you have a conscience, if you haven't seared your conscience so much, you'll feel guilt and you'll feel ashamed and you'll know that you've done something wrong. Right? Christians and non-Christians can all understand this. But what only Christians, what only those who have seen and savored, right, the greatness and goodness of our God, what only we can see is what Isaiah sees. Right, that even the very best part of me, right? My giftings, my strength, the things that I secretly boast about, right? Because of course you can't boast openly, right? But you can let your best friends <laughs> boast for you. Uh, but you know, like these things that we, we glory in secretly. Even the very best part of me, the part that maybe God has anointed, God has blessed, even these, even these are vile. And even these cannot stand up, cannot hold before a holy God. And that's something non believers definitely cannot understand. They will not understand that even their best works, their best service, their most, you know, uh, great examples of sacrifice, right? even those should be repented of because there is so much pride. There is so much vainglory in these things. And so what I realize is that as as believers, right, you know you're a true believer, the more and more you're able to do this, the more and more God opens your eyes to see not just the vile wickedness right, that everyone can agree on, but even the very best parts of you, the parts that look very good, you're seeing more and more, right, that they are so incomplete, right, that they are so riddled with lust and pride and desires for glory and power that you cannot do anything but say, God, forgive me. I am a man, I am a woman who is so unworthy to be in your presence. And I think that that's one of the main uh, goals, right, that is one of the main ways that God is trying to grow us, to sanctify us. Is for us to be able to see that. And so I think only as we see God for who he truly is, more and more as the holy God, right, who not only, of course, sees all things and searches all hearts, right, that his word, the word of God, sharpened in any double edged sword, it pierces, even penetrating soul and spirit, joined to marrow, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Not just that, not just. It's kind of scary when you think about it, like, okay, that is the Word of God, but I don't really like that, but you know God can see everything. But the fact that God, who is holy in His mercy, holy in his love and compassion and faithfulness, this God, this is the God that draws us to repentance. Right? His kindness leads us to repentance. And so I think uh, for myself, in my own journey, the more I've given myself to this, and I've not resisted, right? Because there's many ways as Christians we're able to hide, right? We may not hide physically, but even in our hearts. Many times my picture is God is here in my mind, and I'm, I'm doing this to God. You know, I'm trying to somehow hide from him in my heart uh, because I don't want him to see all the the wickedness and the unholiness. And so but I think that the more we're able to to be free to say, Yes, God is holy and holy in his wrath and his judgment. But Also, as Christians cleansed by his blood, washed by Jesus, our Lord will never be unfaithful to us. Our Lord will never go against his character. He right? will always treat us again and again right? like, I love to think of it this way, like it's the first time, right? like it's the first time that we are, are failing him or sinning against him. And so may you and I, brothers and sisters, Meditate on this more and more. All right, so let's pray and finish. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we thank you so much uh, for this time and for your word. Lord God, that you are indeed a, a holy God. You are our Adonai, the sovereign one, the one who is exalted, the one who is high and lifted up, and that there is none like you. And, O oh Lord, would we continue to desire to be, to be drawn near to you, O oh God? Would we not run from you? Would we not turn and hide from you, O oh Lord? But as we were singing, that we'd come boldly, confidently before you, the throne of grace, because we know what kind of God that we have, Because we know that in Christ, we are made clean and cleansed, and all is paid for. And so, Lord, we thank you so much, and we ask for your blessing. Uh, Would we continue to meditate on these things? We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.